Hello, everyone, and welcome to Uncle Mark's Attic. Everyone is cordially invited to join co-host Zach and me, Uncle Mark, as we explore a variety of interesting topics from the fields of paranormal activities, conspiracy theories, unsolved mysteries and disappearances, and lots more. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Uncle Mark's Attic. Feel free to reach out and contact us with your questions and suggested topics. We would love to hear from you. So come on into the attic with us now as we go exploring. Find out what mysteries we discovered today. Today's episode is about demonic possessions and exorcisms. <laughs> is it playing? Yeah, can you hear it? <laughs> I can't hear it. You can't? I can hear it. Well, as long as everyone else can hear it, I'm... All right, I would say that's long enough. Okay. <laughs> now it won't stop. <laughs> Mark and his technology. I couldn't hear it at all. You that shows you how techy I am. I don't know if it... I don't know. I have no idea, but I could hear it. I hope it shows up on here. Well, hopefully. All right. So, with that being said, it's been a very long time since we've done a podcast episode, but... It is a new year, and we're going to get back into the swing of things. Um, we do have two other episodes that we previously recorded, so by the time you're seeing this, uh, those episodes will obviously probably be up. Yeah, they should. Um, but yeah, we're trying to get back into the swing of things, so you should expect an episode every Monday. So, the episode is on, like I said, demonic possessions and exorcisms, yes. so let's get into it. In late December, there were a number of news reports advising that the identity of the real-life inspiration for the demon-possessed child in the 1973 movie, The Exorcist, had finally been revealed. This movie was based on the 1971 novel of the same name uh, by William Peter Blatty, which he was a student at Georgetown University. He had come across information about an actual exorcism of a young boy that had taken place back in 1949. He decided to write a novel incorporating some of the information he learned about this exorcism. The novel then became a bestseller. He was then hired to write the screenplay for the movie. This movie became a cultural phenomenon. It drew huge crowds of people who would wait in lines to get into theaters around the country. Newspapers and television news programs ran numerous stories about the effect that this movie had on some moviegoers. People fainted and got sick. Some ran out of the theaters in panic. Some larger theaters actually had a nurse and or even an ambulance on standby. Now that is crazy. Mm -hmm. But true. <laughs> Many movie critics today still say that this movie was one of the best and scariest horror movies ever made. Yes, and Zach, unlike you, I was alive when this movie came out in 1973. That's the year I graduated high school. So I was in college when this movie came out. It was in December of 73, right after Christmas, when they first started showing the movie. I'll just mention, after the movie had been uh, filmed and the editing was done and all of that, the production company didn't think this was going to be all that successful of a movie commercially nationwide. So when it was first released in late December of 73, uh, it was only released in, in a number of theaters in the United States. Not, not the usual, you know, where you mega blast of the movie you know we're, you're trying to show it all over the country so they only had a limited number of theaters that were showing it what happened was though that it caught on very quickly and became just unbelievably popular 
and on news programs at night when you were watching the news at 11 and in the newspapers, they would show films or photographs of lines of people standing out there in December and early January waiting to get into the theaters that had this movie. Word of mouth was spreading that this was something unlike anything people had seen before up till that time. So it was drawing huge crowds and immediately... They began to put it in more and more theaters across the country. But there's no exaggeration. There are people that uh, that I certainly know that told me uh, that they did uh, have to leave the theater. They were very upset by some of the scenes that are in it. Now, if you were to watch the movie today, it certainly is somewhat dated because it was 1973. So the special effects that they had then are, are very limited to what we have now. But it's still, uh, even though dis- despite its age, it's still a pretty scary movie if you watch it today. Uh, despite, you know, the limitations they had as far as the technology and special effects and all that. And uh, many critics do say that it is one of the best horror movies ever made, that it really was legitimately a scary movie. So, yes, I was alive to see that, so I can verify everything that (laughs) Zach just said, because he wasn't alive then. Yeah, I haven't seen it, so I have no comment on whether it's good or not. So I'm probably going to go watch it after this. Yeah, it's, uh, it's definitely a frightening movie to watch. Definitely frightening. Uh, and the book, like you said, the book had actually come out. I remember I was in high school when the book first came out, and that became a bestseller. It really did. It was amazing how many people started reading that book. And it's because of the success of the book that Hollywood, people in the movie industry, became interested in, well, why don't we maybe make a movie out of this book? And that's why they hired Blatty, the author of the book, to actually do the screenplay. And it was nominated for quite a few awards, including it was nominated for Best Picture of the Year, which is pretty rare for a horror movie. Didn't get it, but it was nominated. But it did win Academy Awards for several other categories. So it's still, it's still something to watch. I mean, just brace yourself. There's a lot of uh, vulgarity and some pretty creepy scenes in there. But anyway, uh, Zach and I originally thought about doing a podcast about this 1949 exorcism that the novel and this movie are both based on. And we are going to do a podcast eventually on that. But we decided it would be a good idea to first do a podcast about exactly what is meant by demonic possession and what is an exorcism and are these things real? So we decided to do that tonight. That's what we want to do first before we go into that particular incident from 1949. For this podcast, we're going to share with everyone some basic information uh, about demonic possessions and exorcisms, and we're going to share some information that we've assembled from different sources and in particular, two excellent books that we've used in our research for this particular podcast. The first book was uh, is the book entitled The Right by Matt Baglio. Uh, Matt Baglio is an independent journalist, and this book came out in 2009. Matt Baglio was also the co-author of the book Argo uh, that was uh, made into a movie back, I think, 2009 or 2010, and it did get the Best Picture of the Year Academy Award. Um, the second book that we're going to use uh, is Demonic Foes, My 25 Years as a Psychiatrist, Investigating Possessions, Diabolical Attacks, and the Paranormal by Dr. Richard Gallagher. He's a graduate of Yale University Medical School and a psychiatrist. Now, his book came out in the year 2020, and I think we'll show pictures of the book uh, when we uh, put the uh, podcast out. Now, Matt Baglio, for his book, The Right, he interviewed close to 20 exorcists and was allowed to be present at more than 30 actual exorcisms. And The Right, his book became a New York Times bestseller when it came out. Dr. Gallagher today is credited as being the world's foremost scientific expert on the subject of diabolical attacks. So now we're going to jump into kind of like vocabulary words and terms and what they mean. 
Um, so the first one being exorcism, um, and that comes from the Greek word for to bind with an oath. Mm-hmm. And exorcism is a rite, um, a process in which a demon is commanded in the name of God to stop his activity within a person or place. Um, the next word would be demon, and that comes from the Greek word for supernatural power. A demon is a fallen angel who has turned against God. And then angel, which comes from the Greek word for messenger. Angels are pure spirit. They do not have a material body like humans. They do have intellect and free will. Um, The next one would be Satan. Uh, Comes from the Hebrew word for accuser. And devil, which comes from the Greek word for adversary or slanderer. So in traditional Christian... (laughs) Christian teaching, Satan was originally a good angel created by God, but Satan and some angels, using their free will, turned against God. They fell. Uh, They are fallen angels, cut off from the only source that could have given them happiness, which would be God. Uh, After the fall of these angels, God created the material world and human beings. Satan and the fallen angels, the demons, turned their rage on mankind. It is their desire to hurt human beings and to turn them against God. Since human beings sin satan has been given a degree of dominion over humans on rare occasions for reasons no one can fully explain demons are permitted to act on a human being this is what is meant by possession Um, a demon can take control of the person's body and speak through them and act through them as act through them as well Right. So remember what Zach just said, a demon literally is a fallen angel, and angels are pure spirit. As such, that means they cannot occupy occupy physical space. So a possession, when we talk about someone being possessed, a possession is really a demon being able to act upon a human being. And in some cases, a demon can actually act upon physical objects like a chair or a door or something like that. So the demon in a physical possession of a human being, the actual possession of a human, is not somehow physically located inside the body somewhere. They're acting upon the body. One exorcist uh, who I read uh, an interview with some time ago uh, said uh, one way he tries to explain this to people is think of basically the human being as having like a pipe attached to them, say like through their ear, for example. And so the demon is not inside the person. The demon is Again, is is not a physical uh, a being; it's a pure spirit. But it's it's acting on the human being by putting thoughts and ideas into the human being. It it manifests itself through the human being through this pipe, so to speak. If you can envision a pipe, uh, causing the the uh, possessed person sometimes to contort into very odd positions and and to uh, strike out at, at somebody, strike you know physically try to hit an exorcist or whatever. But the point we're trying to make here is that when we say someone's possessed, it doesn't mean that there's some fallen angel, some demon that's literally physically inside a human body. That's impossible. They can't occupy space. No angel can based on their very nature. So that's what we mean when we're talking about a possession right there. Satan and, his, and the demons that have followed him in breaking away from God, their creator, uh, are still finite creatures. So that means 
they're not all powerful, only God is. So Satan and any demonic entity, any fallen angel, they're limited by their very nature, and they're limited by what God actually permits them to do. So they, first and foremost, can't perform miracles, but they will certainly try and fool human beings on occasion and, and create the appearance of what could be seen as a miracle. Satan and the demons, we must remember, cannot do anything unless God actually allows it. That's part of the mystery for all the exorcists uh, that I've read and for the, from the books that I've read uh, and the exorcists that I've met with. Uh, that is part of the mystery. No one has all the answers, and that's one thing about why does God permit this to happen. And one of the things that Zach was mentioning was human beings do sin. They certainly fall on themselves. So as a result of our own imperfections and tendency to sin and go against God's will, uh, it seems that these demonic entities have been given some leeway into rarely, and that's a word we want to keep stressing here, rarely be permitted to possess, to act upon a human being. It's very rare. I want to stress that very much. Every exorcist will, will stress that with you. This is not a common thing. A full possession of a human being is a very rare occurrence, but unfortunately, according to most exorcists right now, it's starting to occur more frequently than it has been in past decades and past centuries. Uh, as a result, we'll talk about that a little later, but as a result of what's going on in our world today and people falling away from a religious faith and all that, but it is happening on a more frequent basis, unfortunately, but it's still a rare, rare thing. And we're going to get into a little bit more detail about how it happens. But first, Zach, you're going to talk to us about the four levels of demonic activity. Yes, this is important. Number one, infestation, which is the presence of demonic activity in a location or an object. For example, mysterious footsteps, loud bangs, laughter, screams, objects disappear, um, and then material lies elsewhere. Uh, electronic devices malfunction, objects levitate and fly around, room temperature drops significantly, bad odors, especially burning sulfur. Yeah. Exorcists say that locations where these activities occur have often been used for occult activities, seances, satanic rituals, murders, or suicides. Usually a blessing or religious service will put a stop to these. Zach, can I just interject right now? I didn't want to... No, you're good. But um, infestation. Now, this is something I've actually, over the years, uh, I've had people that have come to me and told me about some of these type of things that you just mentioned actually happening in their home or somewhere else, but usually their home. I did have a coworker who had uh, an instance where on the wall in her bedroom, uh, she had the crucifix that had been on the casket of her father for his funeral, and she, she wanted to keep that, and that hung in her room. And at one point when she would come home from work, the crucifix would be off the wall and down on the floor, not like it fell, leaning against the wall like someone took it off the wall, and that happened multiple times for her. Now, to me, that was the sign of possibly a demonic infestation, and I had advised her to contact her priest and have him come to do a blessing on the house. That's normally what would be done in the, in the event of an infestation. I had another coworker and friend who had the washing machine turn on in the middle of the night numerous times. It's kind of an odd thing. And other people with TVs that have turned on and things like that. So those would be actual examples of infestation, which is like a lower level of demonic activity. All right, moving on to the second one, obsession. Obsession is an intense and persistent attack on the mind of the victim. The person will suffer with obsessive impulses to harm others 
or kill someone. Uh, they will have overpowering thoughts that make them think they are going insane and thoughts that the only way that they are going to get out of this condition is to make a pact with Satan. Again, this does not require an exorcism, usually a blessing and prayers with a clergyman. Right. Uh, the third level for demonic activity would be oppression. Now, in oppression, the victim will receive, literally, mysterious punches or slaps. They'll be shoved around. Uh, they often will show scratches or bruises that are appearing on their bodies. The aim of the demonic entity here is to drive the victims into a feeling of isolation and despair. And that is so that they will turn their backs on God. Oppression believe it or not, is often aimed at people who are very spiritual and close to God. That's something that would enrage demons who have a hatred of God and a hatred of human beings. But again, in the, in the state of oppression, usually that again requires a blessing and what are called deliverance prayers. It, this is not normally something that would require a, the actual exorcism. However, I would mention that from reading a number of exorcists again that very often people who do become possessed may have gone through a period of oppression first before they become fully uh, possessed. So it, it can lead into a full possession, but in and of itself, that third level oppression is not something that requires an actual exorcism. So the fourth level, of course, is possession, full possession, which has been described as the rarest and the most spectacular activity of Satan and the demons. A demon, it's rarely Satan, according to the exorcist, a demon takes temporary control of a person's body and speaks and acts through the body without the person's knowledge. This occurs during what are called the moments of crisis. The victim enters usually into what's described as a trance state. In the moments of crisis, the demon can manifest itself through things such as strange bodily contortions, displays of unnatural strength. Uh, it can speak foreign languages that the, the victim, the possessed person, really doesn't know, does not speak on a regular basis. These could be ancient languages sometimes, let alone foreign languages, and it can have knowledge of secrets or hidden things. I've actually read some interviews where exorcists have said that when they're in the room and the demon is speaking through the possessed person, acting upon that possessed person, manifesting themselves through that possessed person, they'll actually see, say, a plastic bag that's in the room with the exorcist that they brought in and tell them everything that's in that bag or a briefcase or secrets about their own life or the life of someone else that's in the room with the exorcist. So those are the kind of things that can happen. Just We're just going over some general things right now. Uh, so it's the type of things that can happen during the actual rite of exorcism. Now, usually after those moments of crisis pass, the victim will come out of the trance-like state, and they don't normally have any recollection or memory of what just transpired. It's as if they go into that trance, the demon takes over and uses their body, their mouth, their vocal cords to often curse, uh, utter blasphemies against God, against uh, uh, the churches or religion, uh, the clergyman who's performing the exorcism. Uh, and in between the crisis moments, uh, in the person's everyday life, they can usually carry on as if nothing is wrong, but even then, the demon can influence their mind sometimes to cause such things as anxiety and depression, uh, hateful thoughts, and sometimes even suicidal thoughts. So now the question that I'm sure a lot of you are asking, how can a person become possessed? Yeah. 
Um, experienced exorcists make it very clear that possessions do not just randomly happen. And usually the victim has somehow opened the door for a demon or Satan to enter. Uh, very often the victim has engaged in some type of occult uh, activity, satanic rituals, uh, frequent trips to a medium, seances, and so on and so forth. In other cultures, especially in Asia and Africa, there are certain cases of possessions that are the result of a curse or hex being placed on someone. Yes. Um, I would just I just want to mention something here about, um, once again, we want to stress that, yeah, that there, these... If a person is possessed, it's a very rare occurrence, as we, and we're going to keep stressing that. These are very rare. But a thing I do want to point out is that every exorcist who I've either uh, spoken with or whose books I've read or, or watched their interviews with, you know, stresses that, look, this isn't something that happens randomly. You don't have to go to bed tonight worried about, oh, my God, am I going to wake up possessed or something like that? That is not the way this works. Always, 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 somehow a door was opened, and these... Uh, demonic presences, these entities, these fallen angels, the demons or Satan, they will take advantage of any type of invitation. And like you said, these are people that frequently go to mediums and especially the ones that get involved in satanic rituals. And some of those can be pretty horrible from the, some of the uh, interviews and information I've read about uh, with some possessed people. I mean, they were involved in some pretty nasty stuff involving aborted fetuses and you know, these sort of, uh, well, black masses, which mock, say, for example, the Roman Catholic Mass, uh, things that are meant to be uh, incredibly insulting to God and offensive to God, and, um, like I said, using aborted fetuses, you know, just a real, uh, just an attack on human beings and, and on God uh, simultaneously. So these people are opening a door when they do these type of things. They're, it, so it's not just randomly happening to them. Now, they might have done it when they're younger, and the problems that they develop don't, happen until some years later. That's very frequent from all the things that I've, that I've read, and including in the two books that we're talking about this evening. Uh, that's, that's very common that, you know, it was something that they did maybe when they were a teenager or late teens or whatever, and then all of a sudden the problem starts later for them. But yeah, it doesn't just happen. It's something that uh, somehow you opened a door. Somehow you opened an invitation. Somehow you were into something some of them go as far as worshiping Satan, praying to Satan, asking Satan for favors. That's a big thing. They want to trade off on this. And they don't really understand how dangerous that is because Satan despises human beings, traditional uh, teaching certainly in Christianity, and certainly in the Roman Catholic understanding of, of demonic possession and uh, exorcisms. And you're, you're just, you know, in the Gospels themselves, Jesus referred to Satan as the father of lies. I mean, you're just dealing with someone that has absolutely no concern about you at all. So you're really literally playing with fire here and asking, asking for a lot of trouble. So I do want to stress that about the rareness of it, but that these are the type of things that people can do to bring it on. It's not like it just randomly hits you. It's something that you're, you know, just an unlucky person. It just happens to, you know, hit you with. Now, the next question then is we're going to say, are possessions real? Now, in the beginning of Dr. Gallagher's book, The Psychiatrist, he states that uh, his book relates to, his book is going to relate, excuse me, unmistakable cases of demonic possessions and other diabolical attacks that he has directly encountered over the past 25 years. And the goal of his book is to present the persistent but unequivocal factual evidence of demonic possessions and assaults. Dr. Gallagher him, himself explains in the book, and I've watched him being interviewed on TV on a couple of shows. A few weeks ago, I watched him on the History Channel. He went from being a skeptic about demonic possessions 
to being a believer. And now, like I said, he's considered the world's leading ex- scientific expert and consultant on diabolical activity. So, uh, but again, in his book, he stresses from the very beginning, please keep in mind that possessions are very rare. During his own career as a psychiatrist, he states that he evaluated certainly more than 25,000 patients over the decades that he's worked as a psychiatrist. And in not one single case of those people, of those patients that he worked with as a psychiatrist, did he ever come upon a single instance of a demonic possession. Okay, those people were legitimately dealing with mental health issues and psychiatric problems. He had never seen a possession in his work as a psychiatrist. The cases where he did get involved, and he has concluded as a psychiatrist that a person is possessed, were always cases where the person was actually referred to him by a clergyman, very often a Catholic priest who is an exorcist, but also there are some Protestant ministers and pastors who do something along the lines of exorcisms or deliverance services in their in their churches, and also in some cases rabbis of the Jewish faith who had made references to him too. Uh, to be honest, though, in both of these books, the overwhelming number of cases that you read about do involve a Roman Catholic priest who are serving as trained and experienced exorcists. Um, the, one thing that Dr. Gallagher likes to stress in his book is that possession is a spiritual problem, not a psychiatric problem. He's never going to diagnose somebody as being possessed. There is no such medical diagnosis as a demonic possession. When he's evaluating someone who's referred to him by an exorcist clergyman, his job is to determine, do the patient's symptoms have a natural medical a scientific explanation. So he'll order medical testing to rule out medical abnormalities. He'll interview the, the patient, victims, uh, family members, and friends. If Dr. Gallagher, after all of that, can't determine a medical or a natural or a scientific explanation for the patient's symptoms, he then refers the person back to that exorcist and clergyman and advises them I can't find a medical, natural, or scientific cause. If I can just mention something else here, Zach, I might as well stop now. Back, I graduated college in 77, and I believe the best of my, long before you were born, and here he goes again. He really is such an obstreperous whippersnapper. He, uh, he just pushes me. Uh, but in 1978, um, after I'd graduated college, uh, there was a young woman I was friends with, and uh, she asked me one night, it was going to be, I think it was a Wednesday night. It's a long time ago, but I, I can remember what happened. I just can't remember what night of the week it was, but it was definitely uh, during the week and she w- wanted me to go to church with her. Now she belonged to a prayer group in the Catholic church that she was a member of in suburban Philadelphia. And I reluctantly went along with her and I'm really glad I did because what happened was the prayer group that she belonged to, their spiritual advisor who was stationed at that time at that particular church in suburban Philadelphia was actually the exorcist for the Archdiocese of Philadelphia. And I sat there mesmerized listening to this man very reluctantly talk to all of us about the fact that he was the actual exorcist for the Archdiocese, which meant he had been picked by the Cardinal at that time, you know, to be the exorcist. And he began to talk to us about what all was involved in exorcisms and about a recent case that he had, um, actually, you know, had to perform an exorcism along with a group of other people and other priests uh, in the the five-county region of Philadelphia that, you know, is the Archdiocese of Philadelphia. And the parents of the young man who had been 
determined to be possessed were there and I got to actually meet them. This was my first first-hand encounter, you know, direct encounter with an exorcist and with the parents of someone who had been possessed. I learned a lot that night. I was absolutely fascinated by him. And the reason I wanted to just stop at this point and, and kind of add into this was I can still remember vividly watching his, I, I just stared at him the entire time he was speaking to us uh, from the pulpit in that church. And I remember him saying that, you know, many people will, will come to uh, their parish priest or whatever and uh, they suspect that possibly their child or their spouse or someone in their family or whatever is possessed. And the first thing that that's done, he said, the first requirement, and this was back in 1978, was that they had to go, I remember him saying this clearly, they had to go to at least two different psychiatrists to get evaluations done. And only if those psychiatrists, just like Dr. Gallagher, like we're speaking about now, only if those psychiatrists were to say, no, we can't find a medical, a natural, a scientific explanation for what is affecting and afflicting this person, only then would they start to step in and try to discern, is this person really possessed? And we're going to get into that, how they have to discern. But the first thing they wanted were those medical evaluations because, as almost every exorcist will say, certainly everyone that I've read or listened to, the vast majority of people who come to them really are suffering uh, psychiatric or mental illness problems or emotional problems or are seeking attention, basically. But they're not really legitimately one of those rare cases of possession. So the vast majority of people that come to the exorcist, usually at the most, the exorcist may do uh, say some prayers over them and bless them because they can tell right away that this is not uh, an actual case of a possession. And certainly when they get the reports from the psychiatrist, like Dr. Gallagher would provide, you know, that tells them, no, no, there's nothing medical, you know, you know, unless they get that. But if the psychiatrist comes back and says, yeah, this is, you know, the person is definitely unfortunately has schizophrenia or something like that, then, you know, they can just do prayers over them and uh, some sort of a blessing. But it doesn't require a, a, an exorcism because they're not possessed. It is it is more it's a mental illness yeah. or emotional illness. So I just wanted to mention that. But that was my first introduction. Uh, I had never read anything about exorcisms. I had not read that novel, The Exorcist. And believe it or not, that was 1978. I never went to see that movie when it first came out. I just didn't think it would be something that I would be comfortable seeing. <laughs> and when this priest exorcist was speaking to us in that church in 1978, he made it clear that he had seen the movie and he did not like that movie at all. He thought it was more Hollywood than, you know, actual authentic, you know, exposition of what really goes on in an exorcism. We'll get into a little bit more of what he said to me because it all, it's all in my memory bank still after all these years. Despite all these gray hairs, I still remember that because it had a very powerful impact on me and so did meeting the parents of that young man. But I did want to stress all the way back then even there was this insistence on, you know, a medical and preferably psychiatric evaluations just to make sure that the person's not dealing with a mental illness. Uh, Dr. Gallagher's hope in writing his book is to reach out to people who are open to the idea that we live in a world that has both seen and unseen realms. And these two realms can influence each other in unimaginable ways. A segment of this invisible world seems to be mysteriously hostile to human beings and seeks their physical and spiritual destruction. Dr. Gallagher was contacted by a Catholic priest who was one of the few official exorcists in the United States in the early 1990s. The priest was also the chaplain at a psychiatric hospital. He asked Dr. Gallagher if he would be willing to meet with and evaluate a woman the priest believed was showing signs of demonic possession. 
Dr. Gallagher told the priest that he was deeply, deeply skeptical of demonic possessions, and the priest told him that was a good thing, um, and he would be the perfect man for this job. That began his involvement on the field of demonic possessions. Yes, and in this case, the woman that this uh, priest exorcist had asked him to meet with and, and evaluate, you know, consult with and see what he thought, uh, the victim, it was determined, really was a victim of demonic oppression. Remember we talked about infestation, obsession, oppression, or possession, the four levels. So this is an, the very first case that he got involved with was, in fact, what he determined, as well as the exorcist, that this was demonic oppression. The woman was being hit and beaten by invisible spirits, and she was a devout Roman Catholic. Uh, everything she said was being corroborated by her husband, uh, doctor, I remember Dr. Gallagher in the book had said like, you know, she was just a very good person, good family person, uh, a person of deep faith. So he did what he would do. From then on, he ordered the battery of medical tests. All the results were negative. She underwent the uh, usual mental status exams. Uh, all of those were normal. He just didn't think there was any psychiatric or medical problem here. That's what he told the priest. And then the priest exorcist later advised him that uh, this did not require an exorcism in this case because it is a case of oppression, but uh, they did do um, a series of deliverance prayers and blessings on the woman. It took time. It wasn't a one-time deal. And eventually the woman did get better. She, it, uh, she continued to actually increase in her uh, spiritual activities, her, her efforts to become uh, you know, more and more of a spiritual person, and the attacks, as they slowly graduated, uh, uh, gradually, excuse me, they gradually stopped, and then eventually they just stopped completely. But it did take time. The majority of experts make it clear to most people and that most people who come to them suspecting they are demonically possessed, like we just said, really have psychiatric or emotional problems. And Dr. Gallagher talks about this quite a bit in his book. Many mental illnesses can be mistaken for possession. So most exorcists, certainly here in the United States, normally have a team to help them discern whether or not a person is possessed or is, is just dealing with mental illness. And very often the teams will include psychiatrists and psychologists, neurologists, etc. They want the person medically evaluated to see if there is that medical or scientific cause for their problems. And when and if the medical professionals can't diagnose the medical or scientific cause for the condition, then the exorcist will determine if they should proceed with an actual exorcism. So you first want to do a little bit of diagnostic work here and rule out any medical or natural or scientific cause for what the person is telling the exorcist is afflicting them. So now we're moving on to the rite of exorcism. For Catholic exorcists, the Roman ritual, um, the official rite of exorcism states, the exorcist should not proceed to celebrate the rite of exorcism unless he has discovered to his moral certainty that the one to be exorcised is an actual or is in actual fact possessed uh, by demonic power. Normally, the exorcist... No, no, that's good. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Normally, the exorcist will have a number of people with him for the exorcism. This often includes physically strong men because the uh, victim often has to be physically uh, restrained. Possessed victims have tried to kick and punch the exorcist, pick up furniture and throw it or smash it. Uh, some have even tried to jump out of a window. 
And the ritual goes on to list three signs that often indicate possible presence of a demon, of a demonic uh, possession of a person, uh, the presence of a demonic entity, basically. First, uh, the victim, the person that may be possessed, is displaying abnormal strength. Another sign is the ability to speak and to understand a previously unknown language. And then third is that they have, as we talked a little bit earlier about, a knowledge of hidden or secret things. Another thing that the ritual does refer to is uh, test them. There can be an aversion to sacred things, such as a blessed crucifix, holy water. Uh, The person is unable to say the name of Jesus or physically go into a church. You'll see just almost violent resistance. Dr. Gallagher talks about that. Matt Baglio talks about that. Absolutely violent resistance to going into a church or saying the name of Jesus. The key here that the exorcist is trying to do the medical doctors have reviewed the patient. You know, they've, they've, they've told the exorcist, look, there's no medical or natural or scientific cause for this. If, in fact, this person, now that you've ruled out medical and natural causes and scientific causes, you have to try, if, this, if there is truly a demon present, what the exorcist is trying to do is to unmask the demon. The only way to unmask a demon that is possessing, acting upon a human being, is through the rite of exorcism. So the prayers that are used in the rite of exorcism, Zach and I have a copy of it here, um, the prayers that are used are meant to provoke the demon. Literally, you're trying to provoke that demon to manifest itself, to be present, and ultimately to reveal his name. Then what you want to do is tire the demon out so it detaches itself and the person will then be liberated. Uh, The exorcism causes the demon to suffer. The holy water and crucifix used by the exorcist are sacred objects that carry the blessing of the entire church. The rite itself includes prayers at the beginning asking for God's help, then the litany of various saints asking that they be permitted to assist in the exorcism, uh, readings from the gospel, and finally, prayers that command the demon to leave. Right, and uh, exorcists know that Different demons have different personalities, and some are stronger than others. All of them are liars. Normally, the exorcist, and they're strongly encouraged about this, normally the exorcist will not engage in any type of conversation with the demon when it begins to speak. And usually when it speaks, from the multiple exorcisms that Dr. Gallagher was at, that Matt Baglia was at, and other people that I've spoken with, Uh, including exorcists, it's usually a very nasty or raspy voice. Some exorcists have actually described the demonic voices as what you would hear if a dog could speak, almost that harsh barking noise. It's very, very nasty. There's really only two things an exorcist would normally say to a demon during a rite of exorcism. What is your name, and when are you going to leave this person? Now, the name's important. The demon's name is important because that delineates, explains to us the type of spirit that this demon may be. Often the names a demon gives when it finally begins to uh, surrender, and that's a sign of the surrender. I'll talk about that in just a second. Uh, The name that the demon will give is purely functional. I am the demon of anger. I am the demon of greed. Sometimes the demon will give a biblical name, such as Asmodeus or Beelzebub. These are names that are actually listed in the Bible, uh, in the New Testament in particular. These seem to be higher-ranking demons. Most possessions, uh, 
appear to be done by secondary or these lower-level demons that are going to use these functional names more than anything else. And it seems to be a fact, and Dr. Gallagher talks about this quite a bit in his book, uh, there's definitely a hierarchy among demons, just like there's a hierarchy among human beings. And this comes out a bit in the, during the rite of exorcism when they, when they do get the demon to uh, identify itself. Now, if I can go back to that 1978 uh, lecture I was at, that private lecture with just a s- small group of us that were, uh, it was all these people that were primarily members of that prayer group, and me, that was invited by my friend that's a member of the prayer group. I can remember again that exorcist who spoke to us, uh, telling us that um, when he went in to perform an exorcism, uh, definitely that was his key was, he said, was to get the demon to reveal its name. And that up to that point in his experiences as an exorcist, he had always heard those lower level functional names. I am the demon of greed. I am the demon of lust, those type of things. He said it wasn't some fancy colorful name or anything like that. But I can remember that clearly when he talked to us about that, that he definitely, that was his experience up to, up to that point as, as the exorcist. So I just want to mention that because I, so many of the things that I've read and so many things I've seen, they all go back, they bring me back to that 1978 experience where I first was learning firsthand about exorcism and what they were all about. And so much of what that priest exorcist told me that night in 1978, you know, has been validated in all the years since by these things that I've read. All right, so we need to keep in mind that demons like to stay hidden. Uh, they do not like to speak. So when the rite of exorcism, exorcism begins, a demon will often try to trick the exorcist by not reacting. The demon may manifest itself by contorting the victim's body, cursing, um, and then pretend that it has left. Demons will threaten the exorcist in order to distract him, and an exorcist can be attacked spiritually and mentally and physically during an exorcism. Exorcisms are not once-and-done things. They are, in fact, a a journey. Um, An exorcist should be looked upon as a spiritual director helping the possessed victim rediscover the grace of God through prayer and the sacraments. Um, An exorcism often has to be repeated, sometimes numerous times, possibly over long periods of time that can run over a year or longer, Um, and the victim must cooperate. Um, They must renounce the demon and any activities that may have led them to being possessed. They must return to praying and to going to church and so on. Yes. I, and again, I'm going to jump back now, if I can, to 1978 <laughs> with that incident with the priest. Because I remember him saying to us, uh, you know, if, again, you haven't seen that Exorcist movie from 1973, but he had, and he was, pretty, he was very critical of it. But it, what he was saying there about it's not, you know, one and done, you know, this isn't a case of Exorcist versus Demon, you know, Rocky Balboa versus Apollo Creed, where you just go into the ring and there's so many rounds, and then at the end, the Exorcist win. You know, I mean, it, it's not like that. He said it's not this one time thing, or it, 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 he's made a point, including talking about the exorcism of that young man whose parents were there that night, that it was a, had been a repeated experience where he had to go back and back and back with a team of people after the psychiatric evaluations, all that, when he d- had discerned that it was, in fact, a possessed person he was dealing with, this was, he said it was, you just keep going back, because it is a battle, but it's not like Rocky and, you know, Apollo in the, cre- in, in the ring there. You have to keep going back, because the goal is, like we were just saying, you're out to get it to reveal itself, because they prefer to be hidden. 
so that they can continue their lies and fool people and make them think that the possessed person is mentally ill or and make the possessed person think that they're mentally ill and they ought to kill themselves and things like that. So it is a battle against a, a liar, a very powerful liar, a very intelligent liar, and one that has sometimes uh, certainly displays what are called preternatural abilities, you know, the things that we humans can't normally do, like know about things that are secrets about you or things that are hidden, like in that bag, like we talked about. These are very, very uh, powerful and intelligent beings. Dr. Gallagher talks about that quite a bit in his book, too, about how uh, they're very intelligent. That's why they can speak fluently in all these different languages. They've been around for however long, longer than we human beings have been on this planet. And they have a lot of experience and a lot of knowledge. And he said he's been present at many exorcisms, physically in the room as a psychiatrist, uh, when the rite of exorcism is going on. And they can be very clever, very cunning, uh, and they can uh, physically affect the person. He was talking about one exorcism that he had been at where the person started to talk in a very low voice, and that's another thing they'll often whisper in order to throw people off and confuse you, but very low voice, and it seemed to be an Asian language or dialect he wasn't himself familiar with, but it sounded very much Asian to him. And as the possessed person was speaking in this what appeared to be Asian language, the face was literally contorting, the eyes were slanting, and he said basically the, the overall face was taking on the look of, of an Asian person. Those are the contortions that you're talking about, the way that they can make human bodies actually uh, go into positions that we normally can't or don't do, and also changing the actual uh, facial features. And just yesterday I was actually reading about an uh, a actual exorcism performed by an American priest here down outside of Washington, D.C., and he had told the interviewer that while he was performing the rite of exorcism with the team in the room with him, the person had blue eyes and he watched as the eyes literally turned yellow and the pupil shrunk down to practically like a period at the end of a sentence. And the face took on basically the face of a snake, of an adder, was the word that he actually used. And that's not uncommon. I've read about many cases about that where you can see these physical, not only physical contortions of the poor person's body, but there's also changes in the face, in the eyes. The eyes can become hooded. So these are, uh, there's all sorts of things can happen. There's many, many cases, and if I go into all of them, we'll be here all night. <laughs> all the cases that I've read about or talked with people about. So I will stop there for just a moment, but I appreciate everyone letting me talk about this 1978 <laughs> case because that's really when I first got experience, you know, got first got my real exposure to what exactly is exorcism in a possessed person. The ultimate goal of the rite of exorcism, this journey that everyone's on and the victim, the possessed person has to be a part of that journey. They have to be contribute. They have to want to get better. Dr. Gallagher will go into some cases in his book where they, in the end, you know, the exorcism failed because the person really didn't want to go better. They want it, and we're going to talk about that in the next episode that we do on, on, on demons and uh, demonic activity, demonic possessions, and exorcisms. But, you know, if they don't want to get better, if they don't want to make that break and, 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 and break completely, then it doesn't work. They have to be part of it. It's not just some magical incantation that, oh, the priest stands there and he says all of these words, or the minister or the rabbi, they say all of these words, and then, you know, after so many prayers, then everything's fine. That's not how it works at all. So just thought I'd say that. So the ultimate goal is liberation, what's called liberation from the Latin word for freedom, to free, liberation. And it comes when the Spirit of God commands the demon to depart, working through the exorcist. And when the demon is close to leaving, one thing all the exorcists say, you'll notice it, and you'll know that they're coming 
you're winning the battle and it's coming close to them leaving, uh, the voice that the demon is using, that raspy or nasty voice, that dog-like barking voice, it will become noticeably weaker and their ability to manifest, their ability to contort the body or, you know, change the, you know, the, the, the facial expressions and all that, the ability to manifest also becomes weaker. And if the victim is fully liberated, if the exorcist and the rite of exorcism is successful in getting that demon to depart through the power of God, uh, you have to be careful because that demon's going to want to come back. They don't like losing. They're full of hate and rage towards human beings. They hate us. They absolutely hate human beings like they hate God. And they definitely want to come back and hurt this person. So normally... If an exorcist feels that the exorcism has been successful and the person has been liberated, they want to continue to see that person for some time after that, for some follow-up visits, if you will, and they want to pray over that person and keep because when they pray over that person, if the demon has returned, those prayers will provoke that demon and it will manifest again. That's the point of this. They have to make sure that the person is fully free and the demon hasn't returned. So they do actually do follow-up prayer sessions with them for both deliverance prayers and healing prayers and a blessing to make sure that they don't become possessed again. It's very important that the exorcist has to be a very strong person with a strong spiritual core in order to perform, especially multiple exorcisms, which most of them do. They're doing these things. Um, It's not necessarily a daily thing. Like I said, it's rare, but because the numbers are increasing from what I'm reading, many of them find themselves getting, uh, it's physically debilitating. It wears them down. Uh, a normal exorcism can last anywhere from an hour to two hours on average. Dr. Gallagher talks about that, and so does Matt Baglio in his book. Um, it depends on, on the person. It depends on the demon. It depends on what's involved here. So the more powerful the demon, the more intelligent the demon, as Dr. Gallagher says, the longer the exorcism takes. But usually they'll take between one to two hours in order for And sometimes, like Zach and I said, there's that rite of exorcism that the Catholic exorcists use, and that's really the primary focus in both of these books. Um, sometimes the priest will actually say some parts of that more than once. If they're having a hard time, they're going to repeat parts, of the, especially the prayers uh, where they're commanding the demon to leave in the name of God. So it's not the uh, one and done deal, like we said. It's it's a very it's this is a very complicated area because nobody has all the answers. There's even the most experienced exorcist, like Dr. Gallagher, will say you know, will tell you there's mystery involved here. He is a psychi- He can't explain all of this as a psychiatrist, as a man of science. There's just, we don't fully understand everything that's involved in this, including the powers of these demons themselves and their, uh, you know, the, the level of their intellects. Like he said, you know, some demons definitely appear smarter than others. And you'll, you can tell by the way they speak and what they're doing. Some of them are more cunning than others, uh, but they're all, when you come down to it, they're all full of rage and hate for God and rage and hate for human beings. Uh, one of the instances where I, I uh, Dr. Gallagher was physically present for in a car when uh, they were, uh, he was in the car with an exorcist, with the woman that they, we, we'll talk about this in the next episode, the next podcast, but uh, he remembered very clearly when the, uh, the person that they believed was possessed, and she was, she had been deeply involved in a satanic cult for years and engaged in all kinds of really evil activity. And she was in the back of the car as they were driving, and all of a sudden that raspy, nasty voice comes out where she tells, where she's speaking to the priest who's driving, you know, you effing monkey priest, monkey priest. And Dr. Gallagher said, monkey, that tells you what they think of human beings. 
they equate us as animals, as monkeys. Uh, this is this is the kind of hatred they have for us. We're we're pathetic in their eyes. We're something that should be destroyed. And if God would permit them, they would destroy us. But as Dr. Gallagher says in his book and Matt Baglio, and as we'll go into in the next podcast, God does limit how much they can do. There are limits to what they're allowed to do, even though they have that limited dominion on the earth that permits them to sometimes very rarely possess a human being. So that pretty much wraps up what we wanted to say in this first episode on the demonic possessions and uh, exorcisms. And I think we covered a good bit of at least the basic, some of the basic terminology we wanted to go over and just some of the basic ideas of what's involved. And then we'll go into some other cases in our next episode. And then eventually we're going to get back to you on that 1949 case, which was really the... uh, the impetus, the, the reason that the novel was written and then the movie was made in 1973 that really increased a lot of people's awareness and knowledge of the fact that there was such a thing as the right of exorcism and demonic possession. That really was uh, serious. So that was, as you said, Zach, that was a cultural phenomenon. I mean, it really hit this country hard and it was major news all over the country when this movie first came out and for weeks and weeks, after, months afterwards, really, because the theaters were just so crowded with people flooding in there to see them and yet some people not being able to deal with what they were seeing and then literally running out of the theaters or getting sick or fainting. So you weren't exaggerating about nurses in some large theaters, you know, big theaters in big cities, or even having ambulances on standby because some theater owners were a little bit concerned about, you know, people getting uh, seriously injured or hurt, you know, during, uh, during the showing of these movies. That really did happen. I was alive for that. <laughs> I wouldn't go into the theater myself at that time. I did eventually watch the movie. It is a scary movie, and it's very Hollywood. After that priest had talked about it, I finally said, I got to go, go see this movie somehow. So eventually I did see the movie, and then I realized why The Exorcist didn't like the movie. because <laughs> it was It's scary, but it's very much Hollywood, just like the Conjuring movies that are out today yeah. and, and some of the, the uh, exorcism of Emily Rose and all that. I, I have seen those. I did go to those movies. And I always sit there and just think to myself, like, wow, I mean, exorcisms, demonic possessions, it's scary enough stuff, the things that they can do things that they can pull off. It's some nasty stuff. Um, I know I was reading the um, one priest exorcist was explaining how uh, during an exorcism, he was continuously being threatened and this uh, demonic presence, this entity, this demon uh, that was possessing, acting upon this human being, you know, just kept telling him, I'm going to get you. Where do you get in that car tonight? And then, you know, on his way driving home after the exorcism was over, as he was, you know, maneuvering a rather series of tricky curves in the road, his headlights just died completely, and he was, you know, could have crashed, basically. It was, it's a panic. He had to pull over. I mean, things like that happened. Another exorcist had the engine of his car. After a priest, after a, excuse me, during an exorcism, a demon had told him he would love to burn him. The engine of the car did burst into flames on the way home, totaled the car, so he had lost that car. So there's strange things that happen. They have... Like I said, preternatural powers, which just means beyond normal powers, beyond something that human beings certainly normally can do. They've certainly shown, and Dr. Gallagher talks about this quite a bit, they've shown an ability to interfere with electronic devices. I know earlier today I was telling you about the one priest exorcist who, um, on the morning of a, of a scheduled exorcism he was going to do in the evening, uh, he had gotten a new cell phone, and in the process of you know transferring the information from one cell phone to the other, Later on, when he looked at his cell phone, all of his text messages had disappeared, and he just assumed that it must have been some malfunction. I'm going to have to, I don't know, go back to the store or call the phone company because he said, I lost all my text messages. That evening, he uh, performed the rite of exorcism, 
And uh, while he was performing the rite of exorcism on this uh, poor possessed victim, you know, the demon manifested itself and just all of a sudden, you know, the poor person had that hideous look on their face and just turned to him and just said, so how'd you like what I did with your text messages this morning, priest? You know, it does make you pause and think, wow, they can actually interfere with electronic devices. And a number of exorcists, including the interview I read yesterday by that one exorcist, uh, Monsignor Rossetti, uh, he said that, you know, they have clearly shown the ability to manipulate some of these electronic devices and to literally generate uh, misleading and lieful, you know, full of lies, uh, text messages or voicemails to people, passing on actual false information uh, to people. So we'll talk about that a little bit more in the next episode, but it just shows you it, it's a disturbing enough topic without Hollywood having to make all the other stuff that they throw in in those movies like The Conjuring movies and uh, The Exorcist and things like that. So hopefully everyone has enjoyed this introduction to the topic. Hopefully you'll sleep tonight, Zach. <laughs> yeah, I think this was a good uh, introduction. This might be a three-part series. Yeah, um, so. ho hopefully we were able to lay the foundation as to what an exorcism is for you guys. Um, obviously, we want you to do your own research, and if you want to look into it, great. Feel free to let us know anything we missed or anything that you found interesting. Um but I do want you guys to know that we are going to really hunker down this year and we're going to try and stay as consistent as possible. And hopefully good things will be coming out of Uncle Mark's attic this year. Yeah, definitely. Um, this is a topic I've been, you know, I I'm glad to do this because I am very interested in this topic. And one of the things we always like to do in the attic, number one, is we talked about there's a whole range of things that Zach and I have planned to talk about in various podcasts coming up. We have several dozen topics we've already you know, printed up on our list of things that we're going to be uh, covering and, and dealing with and hopefully uh, providing you with interesting, entertaining, and informative podcasts. But, um, the, you know, one of the other points that besides that we want to do paranormal things like this, this is if this isn't paranormal, nothing is paranormal, <laughs> demonic possession and, and exorcisms. But one of the things we have mentioned in, in previous podcasts is we know that not everybody has the time or the interest or the ability to read all the books that I read. So we do try to give you the gist of any of these books that we use when we make references to them in any of our podcasts. So I understand that you just, you know, you have your obligate, your jobs, your family responsibilities and all your other interests. And not everyone's a natural reader like I am. So we really do like to try and give you the gist of these books so that if you don't have the time to read them, uh, I believe me, I understand that completely. You won't have to, because we're going to try and give you the basic information, certainly the most important parts, the highlights of, of all these books that we make references to. And, in this series of podcasts we're doing now on, on demonic possessions and exorcisms, we're definitely going to be giving you the highlights from these two books in particular, and I'm going to be bringing up some other books in the next podcast, uh, Zach, because there's another new book that just came out, The Diary of an American Exorcist by that Monsignor Rossetti. I found that to be a fascinating book, and that just came out um, in the latter part of 2021. So he has quite a bit of experience here in the United States on exorcisms. And uh, there's some very interesting stories in that book that we're going to be covering in one of the the next two podcasts that we'll be doing on this particular subject. So thank you everybody for coming into the attic and sharing this uh, time with us and sharing this particular topic. And we're not trying to scare you. We're trying to inform you, educate you and help you understand what's, what's real about this and what the fluff is or what the nonsense is. Yep. Try to put that aside and just try to focus on because the real stuff is scary enough as you might be picking up already from part one of our podcast here. So thank you very much for tuning in. We've enjoyed doing this.
I will be definitely watching The Exorcist, hopefully by the time the next episode comes out. So, with that being said, I'll probably give you guys a review. I'm hoping it isn't as disappointing as when I watched Texas Chainsaw Massacre. I thought that movie was terrible. Um, I thought it was very predictable. I've never watched it. So oh, you've never seen it? I won't watch any it's, of that kind of stuff. Yes, it's not very good. No, <laughs> no thanks. Nope. But... Again, thank you all for watching. Thank you all for listening. Feel free to leave us a rating. Uh, feel free to let us know how we're doing in the comments. Feel free to let us know anything, any suggested topics, anything. Feel free to reach out to us on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. Um, we'll be looking for you guys. Um, and with that being yeah. said, that is the end of today's episode. Thank you guys for listening, and we'll see you next time on Uncle Mark's Attic. <laughs> we'll welcome you back, and you're always welcome. Thank you very much. <laughs>